Alrighty, check, check. Can everybody hear me all right? Excellent. Well, welcome to the After Church, everybody. I am so excited to see you this evening. Um, my name is Justin. In case this is your first time tuning into the After Church, just as a heads up, this is an interruption of our normally scheduled pastoring. Our pastor Sway, his wife Allison, their kiddos, they're chilling with the mouse down at Disney World at the moment, hopefully having a super relaxing time. So I'm filling in, and as you can see, I have my best Sway impersonator starter kit on with the Notre Dame swag. I uh, thought about trying to grow up my beard a little bit, but realized that I was probably a few years too late on that front. And, you know, the hair's been a lost cause for a long time. So I'm doing the best I can to fill in here. Maybe I'll try to sprinkle in some dad jokes. Not going to make any promises there. But, uh, yeah, in any case, we hope that Sway and Allison and the fam are having just a really wonderful, relaxing time. It's been a long time since I've spoken in a setting like this. And, got to be honest, I am a wee bit nervous. So I apologize up front for any ums or uhs that are invariably going to sneak into the middle of my talk here. Um, I also apologize if I start to ramble at any point. I am the son of a pastor, and I'm also an aspiring philosopher, which is just frankly a bad combination. It's, it's, it's a dangerous thing. I'm going to try to fight it. I'm going to try to fight it, but just, just as a heads up, I apologize in advance here. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, then you'll know we're in a, sweet, you're, we're in a series, and Sway's been looking at working through uh, an, a series of sermons called Deconstructing Deconversion. We've been looking at high-profile Christians, former Christians, who, for various reasons, have very publicly walked away from the faith. We've been looking at the reasons for doing so, and how we can avoid some of the similar mistakes and pitfalls that they've fallen into. Tonight's not going to be exactly the same thing, but it's very much in the neighborhood. I want to take a look at a criticism, a critique of Christianity that I came across a couple years back in the context of someone's deconversion that really got me thinking. I also want to share just a few thoughts that I've had in response to it. And I'm not going to pretend at any point here that I've got all the answers on this topic, but I want to really grapple with the challenge. One thing that I love about the After Church is that we strive to be a community that leans into the uncertainties, that isn't afraid of the questions, but rather a community that humbly examines those questions scripturally, prayerfully, historically, logically, and communally. So that's what I'm going to aim to do tonight. To kick things off, uh, let's go ahead and pray together. Oh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, our great three-in-one God. We come before you tonight in full recognition that you are creator and that we're creatures, that you are wise, that you are strong, that you are good. Still, there's a lot in life that happens that we just don't understand. There's so many sources of confusion, of pain, of grief. We feel that as we should, it's right to feel it, but sometimes it shakes us, God. Sometimes it breaks our hearts. So we ask tonight, Lord of all comfort, 
that you would draw us close to you in the midst of the uncertainties, in the midst of the unknowns. Teach us how to wait patiently. Teach us how to hold on to hope. Amen. All right, so to kick us off, to help us get into, build up towards this criticism, I thought it might be helpful to begin by sharing about a specific unhealthy life choice that I once made. Now, to be sure, I have made a great many unhealthy life choices. For instance, I made the decision to go to grad school. Uh, That's something that I think at least a few of you can relate to. I am also far, far too passionate about french fries for my own good. Uh, The specific decision, though, that I'm talking about here, the specific unhealthy choice that I made that kind of catapulted or was a catalyst to this talk and all the thoughts that were circulating for me, was that I opened a Twitter account. Now, I think probably you guys are all familiar with Twitter, but in case you're not, it is perhaps the social media platform for sharing just quick snippets and sound bites of information. Finding out how your team's third-string quarterback looked during training camp, seeing pictures of Taylor Swift's cat, putting Walmart on blast because they forgot the cereal in your grocery pickup order. Twitter has a lot of power and influence. It's a way for us to connect really efficiently. Because of that, It's also one of the greatest cesspools of toxicity in the known world. There is significant evidence, and I'm not making this up, that being active on Twitter is causally correlated with depression, anxiety, loneliness, struggle sleeping, and more. It is literally an unhealthy place to hang out. So anyway, there's this one day I'm on Twitter. And I'm doing my usual doom-scrolling thing. I'm looking at all this terrible stuff that's going on in the world that I have very little ability to do anything about, feeling lots of negative feelings. And I come across this thread from a former pastor who's recently deconverted from Christianity. His reasons mostly involve accusations against the system, saying things about how the system doesn't work. Church people had hurt him, He'd seen church infrastructure used in abusive ways. he checked the recommended boxes, but his marriage was falling apart. People he'd prayed for had died. He'd played by God's rules, he felt, but God hadn't kept his end of the bargain. God hadn't shown up when it had mattered. So, all that the man had to show for his decades of ministry were feelings of failure and a growing sense that his life was a sham. What I found most intriguing about the Twitter thread were apparently just like literally like hundreds of comments celebrating the guy's choice. People who label themselves as ex-evangelicals or scientismists or post-Catholics all coming together and rejoicing like the angels of heaven that this lost sheep had at long last come home. They applauded this guy's bravery, assured him that he was finally free, encouraged him to find substitute communities, and welcomed him to the real world. I was really fascinated by this. I was also disturbed and saddened. But it was just so interesting to me to see so many people treating Christianity, 
what I take to be the cornerstone of my identity as this great evil that needed to be escaped. I don't doubt the guy's story. I'm sure that behind the comments in that thread, there were many horrific stories about the atrocities of Christians or Christianity. I'm familiar with a few stories like that myself. I don't doubt that the system doesn't work, or at least too often it doesn't work. And in the not working, it has really seriously hurt people. It's ruined people. It has chewed them up and spit them out, trod them down. People that by its own lights are infinitely precious. I don't doubt that it's done that. I don't doubt that it's left these really deep wounds. I've seen as much. I expect many of you have too. So that raises this question, what are we still doing here? Why do we stick around? Why do we maintain the faith? in the midst of the atrocities, in the midst of the heartbreak. What's holding us together? What's the foundation of our hope? I want to share three specific thoughts that I had as I was reflecting on this in light of uh, the sex pastor on Twitter. And the way I thought it might be helpful to formulate them or to approach them to come at it was in terms of centering it all upon memory and remembering. And I have a specific reason for doing this. I come from, as a bit of a background, I come from a weird family. I suspect that's true of all of us, but I have a weird family in one significant and relevant respect. When I was growing up, and pretty much every time that I've gone home to visit my folks since then, there comes a point every day, usually around 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, where everyone in my family makes their way to the living room and we sit on the couches, and we tell stories together. Not just any stories, mind you, but specifically stories about us, stories about our background, stories about things that we did together. Hey, remember that super stressful family vacation we took to Utah? Oh, yeah. Was that the time we rode down those giant slides? Remember the like, huge metal ones where you had to sit inside that sack to ride them down? And Josh was like way too skinny to ride it, and he hit that one bump, and he almost launched into space? No, that was a different time. But let me tell you, as your father, that was not a fun experience for me. It took all my strength to keep that kid from going into orbit. That's a snippet of the sort of conversation that would take place on my, in my house on any given evening. And we would go that way for hours. What are we doing as a family when we're talking in that way? Well, we're remembering together. Because we, as a collective, are the Britons. And that means something to us. There's a history there. A shared bond, a shared purpose. Being a Briton means you're probably a little bit more sensitive than most people, a little more competitive than you should be. But it also means you care really deeply, and you're going to try even knowing that you'll probably fail because you don't want to be sidelined by criticisms in life. That's the kind of family culture that we've forged over time 
through our telling of stories, through our shared experiences. When we gather together, we retell the stories that were so influential in bringing that about. And in doing so, we remind ourselves of who we are. I did not realize how unusual that was until I went off to college and I would like stay, uh, stay the night at a friend's house or something and be like, oh, so, uh, so when's story time, guys? Uh, when's, uh, when are we going to hang out and talk about our lives? And did not realize that's not something that anyone else does. But I got to say, I love that aspect of my family's weirdness. And I'll add, I think that this is a respect in which our weirdness really closely parallels something biblical. Again and again in the early portions of the Bible, we encounter imperatives like this one given to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 4. Take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Or this one in Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teachings. Incline your, words to the, your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark, dark sayings of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generations of the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders of the things that he's done. What's the point of verses like this? God knows that we as human beings are really short-sighted and often forgetful creatures. We lose the forest for the trees all the time. So what's the remedy? Don't Don't stop telling the stories. Know your history. Remember who you are. Because for you, remembering who you are requires remembering what God has done. Remembering where you've been reminds you where you're headed those messages are still true today. You and I, we're Christians. We're the people of God. And that means something. It means we're the people of the resurrection. It means we're the people of real hope. And it means a few other things too. Not all of the things that it means, not everything bound up in being a Christian is immediately pleasant. But it's all powerful. So, with the time that we have tonight, I want to engage in an exercise of remembering. Reminding ourselves some truths about who we are as the people of God. That brings me to my first point. Remember that you're not alone in the waiting. Remember that you're not alone in the waiting. There is a snarkier sort of way of trying to make this point. It's something like this. You're not as special as you think you are. So often, I come across someone raising a problem with Christian faith, and they present it like it's this super profound discovery. And maybe it is personally for them, but they treat it like it's bigger than that. They treat it like they've realized something that nobody else has ever thought before. And, you know, don't get me wrong. Sometimes we do come across new and interesting objections that need to be thoughtfully considered, but it's just not that common. 
so many times, you'll hear something, you'll hear something like, the system is broken. It's supposed to be this like huge bomb drop moment, something that you're supposed to be shell-shocked by. And I don't mean to make fun of it, but it's just, it's frustrating sometimes when someone encounters a problem, a genuine problem, but in saying, instead of saying to themselves something like, hey, I'm a member of a tradition that's thousands of years old, a tradition that was forged in the fires of exile and persecution, whose central figure is a crucified God, I wonder if anyone's grappled with these issues that I'm wrestling with before. I wonder if it's ever crossed someone's mind. Instead of saying something like that, so much of the time, you instead get a message of like, the church just isn't talking about this. The church just hasn't appreciated the significance of this. And I'm just sitting there like, buddy, read a book. It's one thing when you've really examined the struggles of those who've gone before you, if you understand how they came to terms with the same things that you've gone through. And to be clear, I do think some people do that, and they're not the ones that I'm like talking about or targeting with this sort of point here. I'm, in talking, I'm talking about the person who like doesn't even look, who doesn't even bother who just thinks that they're so brilliant that they figured it out, they've seen something that no one else has ever seen before, and now it's done and over. That's just a level of hubris that baffles me. And it's frankly a disservice to the rich, complex, powerful, and honest history and legacy that we have as Christians. Adversity provides us with decision points. You can lean in, not blindly, but by learning, or you can fade out. And sometimes, sometimes it just feels like somebody's looking for an opportunity to fade. That their heart has been won over by other things. I realized after I wrote this part that it, was, it had gotten a little bit ranty, so I'm going to try to like rein it in. Pull, pull back now. Um, like I said earlier, I don't want to pretend that I have all the answers. There are a lot of really difficult questions. Being a human is hard. But something that I often find helpful when I'm wrestling with what God is or isn't doing in my life at a given moment, when I'm getting impatient with his seeming non-action, is to remember that I'm not alone in feeling this way. Other people have felt this way before. Other people have grappled and wrestled and struggled with God. And indeed, some of those people are present in Scripture. And I want to look at one of them today. So now I'd invite you to turn with me to our main text this evening, Habakkuk. I know, everybody's favorite book. Another sermon on Habakkuk. It's just too, too typical these days. Anyway, I think this is a really powerful, really interesting, really provocative text that we should wrestle with and sit in as Christians a lot more often than we do. So I'm going to try to take a step towards that tonight. Here's Habakkuk 1, 1 through 4 to kick us off. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear me? Or cry to you, violence, 
and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Question, do these sound like the words of someone who believes that the system is working? I would submit that they do not. Habakkuk lives in a time when the glory days of Israel are long gone. Kings like David and Solomon are dead. The nation's been split in two. Habakkuk is living in the southern kingdom called Judah. And Judah's been under a string of mostly terrible leadership for a while. Which has led, in turn, to corruption, to disrepair, to God's laws being ignored, to idolatry. It's led to rich and influential people using their power to exploit the poor, to dishonest business practices, and a lot of fake religion. And you can just picture Habakkuk, this man who's trying to follow God, walking around, taking it all in and just being heartbroken. Wondering. You can imagine how distraught he is, just being like, God, do you see this? Do you see what's going on? And for a long time, it seems like his prayers are met with silence. Nothing changes. The corrupt rulers go on being corrupt, profiting, exploiting, living it up. Now, spoiler alert, God does actually answer Habakkuk in this text. And we'll look at what God has to say in just a moment, because there's a whole can of worms there in itself. But before we do that, I want to look at how Habakkuk waits. We don't know exactly how often Habakkuk prayed prayers like this. I imagine it was frequent. Or how long he sat in the silence hoping God would say something. But even in the arrangement of this very text, we get the impression that he was waiting for a minute. Why do I say that? Because we get this really interesting pattern in the text itself. This movement of call from Habakkuk where he raises this complaint. He raises this outcry to God. And then God responds. But just when the book teaches us to expect this pattern, Habakkuk says something, God says something. Habakkuk says something, God says something. It breaks the pattern. Habakkuk makes this impassioned speech to God and then he's the next person to speak again. Almost like God didn't pick up the phone on him the first time. Let's look at how he responds in the waiting in Habakkuk 2, verse 1. He says, I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer 
and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Again, he's just made this impassioned speech. God hasn't answered. So now what? Now he waits. But importantly, this isn't a passive waiting. He's a guard on duty. He's got his eyes peeled. He's expectant. Because he believes that he's in a relationship with a God who's active. A God who's responsive. Even when on the surface, it doesn't seem so. I think Habakkuk's super important because, honestly, I think in life, a lot of the time, we're hungering for heroes. We're looking for someone that we can look up to, someone to show us the right way to live. And I would humbly suggest that one of our heroes should be Habakkuk. Because Habakkuk recognizes and realizes that often in this life, the people of God are people who wait. People who wait expectantly. And in him, we catch a glimpse of what it means to wait well. But as I said, God does answer Habakkuk in a very clear and direct way. So that brings me to my second point here. Because there's a lot to go into, but I think the best way to unpack it is just to move on and say, point number two, remember that you're not alone when things don't go the way you hoped they would. Habakkuk's in this unusual position. When he talks to God, God talks back. Very straightforwardly. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I hear that, my initial reaction is to get pretty jealous. I know there have been a lot of moments in my life, some of them I can still remember really vividly, when I've been torn up over something and I've brought it before God and I would have done anything to hear him respond in a really concrete way, whether that's audible, whether he's using the neon signs, however he wants to do it. I just want something that's like really obvious. Habakkuk gets that, and got to level with you, when we see how God responds to Habakkuk, it kind of leads me to think, oh, you know, eh, maybe I don't have it so bad after all. Maybe real talk with God isn't always the most pleasant thing. Desire it just a little bit less. <laughs> Why do I say that? All right, let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, let's jump to the beginning of the book again. Habakkuk's just made this cry in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1, saying, look God, look how bad Israel is. There's all this violence, there's all this injustice, all this idolatry and immorality. Are you just going to turn a blind eye to all of this? And here's how God responds in verses 5 through 11. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if you were told. Okay, so far so good. God's going to do something that's going to blow Habakkuk's mind. Surely this is just going to be super awesome, happy news, right? God continues. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, 
who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings that are not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. In other words, God's saying, Yeah, Habakkuk, I have seen the people of Judah's wickedness, and I'm going to do something about it. I'm not sitting idly by. Their comeuppance is a coming. I'm sending Babylon, a group of bad, nasty dudes, to drop the hammer on the evil that Judah has become. Habakkuk's mind is indeed blown by this news, but not in a good way. Not at all. He is shocked. He's taken aback. Because as bad as Judah is, Babylon is way worse. So here's his reply in verses 12 and 13. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when, they, when the wicked swallows up a man more righteous than he? So again, just my paraphrase, my little translation of what's going on here. Habakkuk's like, okay, God, I, I hear what you're saying, but what are you doing? I know we're bad. I'm in agreement with you there. But at least some of us are trying <laughs> We're your people, after all, the people you chose to bless the nations through. Remember that? I know you do. So I know we're not going to be wiped off the map here. But still, how can you do this? Your eyes are too pure to look at people like the Babylonians. How? How is it fair or right to use the more wicked to punish the less wicked? How, as a righteous God, can you use evil people to carry out your will at all? Are you going to punish us, but then just let Babylon off the hook? God, I just do not get it. This is the point in the story where God doesn't answer right away. He leaves Habakkuk hanging. Habakkuk has to sit and wait, and the wait is not comfortable at all. Still, God does eventually answer him in chapter 2. And what God says in summary is, don't worry, Babylon's going to get theirs too. Yes, he says, I'm going to use Babylon, but that doesn't mean I approve of everything that Babylon is or everything Babylon stands for or does. Their reckoning is on its way as well. And that goes for any nation that's operating similarly. This is supposed to be really good news for Habakkuk. 
And he does take it that way. But there's still just this real puzzle that he's left sitting with. Although God assures him that Babylon's going to get what's coming to them, he doesn't change his mind about the fate that's awaiting Israel. They're still going to be judged themselves and judged via this incredibly wicked powerhouse nation. They're going to be carted off into exile as slaves. It's not at all a happily ever after kind of story. Not at this moment. And Habakkuk just has to sit in that heaviness. And the knowledge that God's plan for his nation is not at all the plan that he wanted. What does he do now? We get this response from him. It's the last part of the book, chapter 3. It comes in this prayer, and it's got some really beautiful parts to it. But I think you can also just hear the heaviness of his heart when he prays these words. Here's how it opens in chapter 3, verse 2. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of these years, revive it. In the midst of these years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He goes on to talk about God's power, God's coming judgment. There's a lot of really powerful imagery. He's painting God as this fearsome warrior and accepting that God's going to see his course through. That when God shows up to confront evil, God's going to get the job done. And then he closes with these words in verses 16 through 19. I hear... And my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer. He makes me tread on the high places. Those are the last words we hear from Habakkuk. The last words of the book. Ufta. Again, there's just so much going on in this text. More than I could possibly hope to adequately unpack or do justice to, but I just want to take a step back from them for a moment. I know we've moved through it really quickly. We've covered a lot of territory, but I just want to take a step back and try to get a view of the book of Habakkuk as a whole to get a trajectory of where we've been to sit for a moment and acknowledge that this is a difficult text. It's puzzling. Habakkuk, this man who desires holiness, reaches out to God, heartbroken about the state of his nation. He comes from this place of genuine desire for righteousness. And he's met with this really, 
really difficult news in reply. And he struggles with it. He protests it. Yet he eventually comes to this place of acceptance, of trust, of praise. There's a really powerful example here. It's moving. It's reassuring, I think, to know that someone could have been in a place like that and respond in the way that Habakkuk does. It lets me know, at least, that such a response is doable. That it's possible to have that kind of strength. That someone else who was met with difficult news about God's plan could respond in such faith. And maybe I could do the same thing. That I'm not alone when life doesn't turn out exactly the way I hoped it would. That's the way I think we should respond as Christians. But I also think that we should admit that there's a certain light or a certain perspective you can take in which Habakkuk's response is just downright baffling. Couldn't you instead see this as just a prime opportunity for someone to conclude, well, all this talk about the fig tree not blooming and the rotten bones is just proof that this thing does not work. The system, broken. Following God, not all it's cracked up to be. He's not looking out for me in the way that I needed him to, the way that I wanted him to, so I'm out. I think we should take this alternative response seriously because I think, honestly, when you really dig back and peel back the layers of so many deconversion stories, the rationale that's behind it is something like this. But that begs the question, what's the missing ingredient? What is it that would allow us to respond like Habakkuk rather than that former pastor on Twitter? I think there's a ton that could be said in response to that question. But there's one thing particularly that's jumped to mind for me in preparing this message. And it's tied into the previous two points that I've been talking about. Tonight I've tried to encourage us by reminding us that the struggles that we go through, the waiting, the disappointment, that we're not alone in those experiences. That others have been there before and that they persevered in faith. But, you might reasonably think, (laughs) you know, Justin, that only goes so far. Historically, there are a lot of examples of large groups of people who have all been wrong about something together. Having a bunch of friends to hang out with, knowing that you're not alone, isn't necessarily a great consolation prize if you're all climbing aboard the Titanic. And to that sort of thought, to that sort of complaint or concern, I would say I 100% agree. Patience and waiting and persevering when hopes aren't met yet, when things turn out differently than how we'd expected, wanted, that sort of response makes sense only when those, only when they're nested in something greater. And one of the things that came to mind for me in trying to fill in the gaps, like what's missing in this story, I was like, well, a crucial bit is that the story's not over yet. And that brings us to point three, namely, 
Remember, the story's not over. If this moment of waiting or this moment of disappointment were all that there was, then of course responding like Habakkuk wouldn't make sense. If the response to injustice was forever and always, oh, don't worry, they're going to get theirs too, there's going to be some bigger, badder group of people who are going to come along and squash them, such that history was condemned to forever be this cycle of dog-eat-dog, wicked people overtaking wicked people, well, then there wouldn't be any hope in that. It'd be totally empty. But, of course, that's not the end of the story. Uh, I want to come at this point in a slightly different direction. Suppose for a moment that you agreed with the ex-pastor on Twitter that the church, as things stand, is indeed broken, that it's a mess. If you agree with that, then I have good news for you. Namely, you're starting to agree with the message of Christianity. Because the message of Christianity is not, not just the church, but the whole world is deeply, deeply broken. That everything under the sun has gone horribly wrong that none of it is capable of fulfilling or completing us. The church doesn't claim to be special because it's not broken. The church claims claims instead that the journey is far from done. And it claims to be in contact with the one person who can ensure that the ending of the story is different from everything that's come before. Because he wasn't part of the brokenness, naturally or appropriately. Rather, he took it on willingly in order to secure for us an alternative future. He became the dead, then living again God-man at a real point in space and time. And in so doing, he paved the way for an alternative future for us. I am, of course, talking about Jesus, in case anyone was unclear on that. Shocker. But that sort of thought is what drives me to echo Peter in John 6, that beautiful confessional moment when Jesus has just said some really hard things and a whole bunch of people are ditching him and you get this sense that he's starting to feel so discouraged. And he looks at the disciples And he says to them, are you guys going to leave too? Are you guys going to peace out on me? And Peter responds in this really just beautiful way. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. Where else are we going to turn to? Because if everything else in life is broken, truly broken, then our chances at wholeness, holiness, or true and lasting happiness, they got to hinge on something from another life. Such that the rational thing to do is pin yourself to the guy who's been there, done that, who has access to that life. The guy who's offering it to you, who died, who rose again. 
That's why I just often, I genuinely wonder when I encounter someone who's given up on Christianity. I just want to sit and talk with them and ask in all genuineness, what are you moving toward now? I can accept totally, completely how psychologically it might be a huge relief to disavow the church, especially if you've experienced it as a place of abuse, a place of hate. But if at one point in time you really believed in the hope and the promise of eternity, what are you hoping in now? What's taken the place of that? Yourself? Your friends and family? Your career? Your passion project? Whatever you fill in that gap with, however you fill in the blank, I hope you can at least be honest enough to admit that those things are broken too. That they aren't strong enough at the end of the day to really hang your hopes on. That the only way to get by to avoid the crushing disappointment and hopelessness is to continue shifting attention for different distractions, for different to change the goalposts. Just keep yourself from really fixating on what you've lost. I think maybe instead a lot of people just give up on this whole idea of like eternal hopes, that it's all just too lofty. They decide to play it safe, take the world as they find it. And I think settling in that way, it's probably a safe route, assuming it's even a sustainable state of being. And I'm not at all convinced that it is. But I also just think it's incredibly sad. If you've tasted the hope of eternity, I just don't see how you can go back. I just grieve for these people, honestly. For ancient Jews and early Christians, Babylon wasn't just an oppressive nation that at one point conquered Israel and dragged a lot of people off into captivity. It also became a symbol of everything that's wrong with the world, of all the ways in which spiritual forces of pride and arrogance, greed, lust, how these things worm their ways into our hearts and drive us to evil actions, lifestyles, structures, and systems that we're all too familiar with every day. That, I think, framing it in that term, seeing it in that perspective, it was what makes the book of Habakkuk really hopeful. When God, at the end, says, look, I'm coming to put a stop to Babylon. They'll get theirs too. It's not really, at the end of the day, about this one little nation. They weren't little, but, uh, you know, extinct now. It's about something bigger. It's about the whole thing, everything that's wrong. the hope, the promise, is that God's going to bring it all to an end. And so if we're at any moment in life where you might be just tempted to declare it's not worth it, God counters with the message that it's not finished yet. There's more to the story to be told. So what's the end of the story? The good news is that we're not left on the dark there. The God who kicked things off with a garden says he's bringing things to conclude in a city. A place where he 
will dwell with us in the way that he's always wanted to. A place where every tear is wiped away. A place where the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. A place where there's no need for sunlight because God's glory lights everything up like Christmas all the time. That's the message that the whole of the Bible leaves us with. That's the image, that's the picture. And I don't know about you guys, but when I hear that, when I think about that, when I start to conceive of what it could be, it just sounds to me like a place worth holding out for. A place worth waiting for. The title of my message tonight is Trust in the Not Yet. That last bit, the the not yet part, it's a, a term, it's part of a term that sometimes gets thrown around in theological circles called the now but not yet. And it's this way of referring to this mysterious chunk of time that we're now in, where on the one hand, Jesus came, he was incarnate, he died on the cross, he made this declaration that it is finished and that that was true. That it is finished, that he's done this work, the battle is won, his kingdom has begun. And yet, there's this sense in which it hasn't come into its fullness yet. That we're still here in the day-to-day. We get up, we go to work, we go to school. And much of the time, it's hard to get a sense of a larger purpose in the midst of just the immediate tasks. I don't know why God's chosen to act in the way that he has. Sometimes I find it just really perplexing. And then, you know, selfishly, I wish things looked different. But I do know that on both sides of the cross, God's primary chosen course of action in history has been through his people. He chooses and prefers, he opts to work through us. He's a God of relationship at his core. Acting through broken people means that things are often slower than we'd like, that things often go wrong, that we often find ourselves in places of waiting and disappointment. But it also means that there's just this really fascinating symmetry in history on the Christian worldview. That there's this really powerful connection between us and the ancient Israelites. That we can relate to each other. You can see the mirror of history kind of like this. Everything centers on the cross, right? That's the middle. Christ's death, life, resurrection. Here's our center point. You go this way. You go back in time as far as you can. What do you find? A good garden. A place that God intended to live and dwell with humanity, an opportunity for us to work in fulfillment of our nature, of our being, of what we were made to be. Then there's this rebellion. We reject that. We say, no thanks. And we fall. And the fallout of that is huge and devastating and breaks relationship with God, breaks relationship with each other, breaks relationship with the world. All the way down, everything falls apart. And the Israelites find themselves in the middle. They look back on this good that was lost. And they look forward to this hope 
They don't even know exactly what it is. But they've been promised that a king is coming who's going to set things right again. That God is going to dwell with his people once more. We're on the other side of that. We have the luxury of being able to fill in a lot of the details on that moment that they were hoping for so expectantly. We look back on the events of Jesus' life, on the incredible power of his testimony in space and time. And yet, we're also in this place where that hasn't yet fully come together in completion. There's this goodness that we're still longing for. And that's the other end of the spectrum, right? The end of all things, where we arrive at that city where God says, my dwelling place is with humanity. So you have these goods on both ends of the spectrum. You have Christ in the middle. And then you have us and the Israelites in these places of waiting. In these places of looking ahead and hope and expectation and longing for goods of looking back at incredible things that God's done. And I just think, you know, evils abound in our world. It's true. But we look back on Christ's incarnation, the day that Habakkuk yearned for. We look forward to the new creation, the day when it's all going to be set right again. And we look at that symmetry. We look at someone like Habakkuk caught up in the middle of it. And I think we just get to connect with him in such a powerful way because we know the fulfillment of what he was waiting for. We know what it was, this coming king. There's actually, we didn't focus on this verse, but there is a place in his final prayer there where he makes a reference to those God's going to save and then he specifically refers to the anointed one. He didn't know the details on who the anointed one was going to be. But we do. I can only imagine if he had those details filled in. How his mind would have been blown. How his world would have been rocked. If that was the good that was in store for him. In that place of waiting. In that place of disappointment then it just gets me really excited to think about the goods that could be in store for us. I can only imagine what's coming. The good that awaits you. I don't know, guys. It just rocks my world. Let's go ahead and pray. Oh, God, there's just so much that we don't understand. And, you know, we're trying We love you, our hearts are for you, we desire you, but we're so weak and frail, we lose sight, we get bound up in discouragement, things don't go our way, and God, it's just so easy. It's so easy for us to fall into hopelessness, for us to turn away from you and your good gifts, all the wonderful things that you've done. Lord, in your mercy, in your grace, draw us back to yourself strengthen us in this time, in these days, in the now, but not yet. Give us the courage, the vision that we need to trust, to hope and look forward to that day. However you choose to fill in the details, God, we're so excited. Can't wait.
pray this in your name, through the sacrifice of your Son, and the power of your Spirit. Amen.